thanks for stopping by. I've really been looking forward to this conversation, and I'm even more looking forward to future conversations when I'm not the subject of conversation. This is going to be a bit of an unusual episode. This is our intro. This is episode zero. My producer, Jake West, told me it would be a good idea for me to introduce myself, tell you a little bit about the show, and so here goes. Uh, Hopefully, I'll be the most boring guest we ever have. I think we're going to have more interesting guests coming up. Well, I know we are. I already have a lineup of terrific people we're going to talk about, talk to, and topics we're going to talk about. But, you know, I figured, let me ground that a little bit and tell you who I am. So, where do we begin? Well, let's begin at the beginning. I started out as a homeless kid, living on the streets and the alleys and the subways of New York uh, when I was about nine years old. By the time my parents had lit me on fire for the third time, and after my 14th trip to the emergency room, I figured it would be safer to be out on my own, and and so that's what I did. Uh, As you can imagine, I had some very interesting experiences as a kid. It culminated my going to work for a couple of bookie-slash-loan sharks in midtown Manhattan. Uh, These guys could have starred in an episode of The Sopranos. Uh, Their names... Real na- well, I don't know if it was their real names, but we called them Primo and Tommy too. Uh, in all fairness, they were actually pretty nice guys. They were they were nice to me at least, and candidly, I think they saved my life because on my 16th birthday, literally on my birthday, they ran me out of New York. They gave me a lift to Interstate 80 in Fort Lee, just the other side of the George Washington Bridge in New Jersey, and they told me, "Go west, young man." Uh, or else. And uh, yeah, that's that's what I did. I On my 16th birthday, I, I stuck out my thumb and I was heading for California. I had a copy of a Sunset magazine that was showing uh, um, a big Sur area in Northern California. And I just thought, man, this is paradise. And that's where I wanted to go. And I headed that way. And after about mm, three and a half, almost four months, I'd only made it to Nevada. I had just crossed, in fact, I remember like it was yesterday, even though it was a long time ago now. I remember crossing the Hoover Dam and saying, you know what, I'm done. I just, I can't go any further. I wonder if there's someplace I can live at the Hoover Dam. And of course I couldn't, so I made it into Las Vegas. And when I got into Las Vegas, I found that you could eat at the buffets, at like the mint buffet, the circus circus buffet, for under three bucks. So I'm I'm putting a year on this inadvertently, I guess. And I thought, wow, you know, if I can eat for three bucks a day and I could just go to the buffets once a day and just load up and they didn't care, uh, then, you know, it won't take that much to support myself. And, And that's what I did. I settled in, I called it home, and that became where I lived for uh, quite a few years. I Once I got established, once I got uh, a place where I could stay, I decided to enroll myself at the Southern Nevada Vocational Technical Center, good old SNVTC, in lieu of high school, and that's where I learned to code. Uh, it was there, as a matter of fact, in the 1970s. I learned to code on an IBM 1620 using Hollerith punch cards. No kidding. And it's actually, uh, it was a great experience. It was great learning, if nothing else, learning to think algorithmically, to think like a computer. And in fact, that became my first real honest job after working for the bookies and the loan sharks and doing that sort of thing, running numbers in Midtown. 
doing collections. Here I was in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I had learned uh, to code. And so I got hired as a computer, not working on computers, mind you. That was my job title. That's what they called us back then was computers. And so there I got a job, worked for this company, and it was horrible. Uh, I went to work in this horrible basement uh, with it. With the machines were loud as you can imagine. Uh, well, maybe you can't even imagine. The people were mean. They treated us worse than the custodial staff. It was just a horrible job. But I really like computers, and so I found myself working by day and kind of screwing around with computers still at night. And in fact, I became one of the first rounds of hackers. Nothing bad, nothing like today when you think of a hacker. Uh, we used to think of it as hackers and crackers, and hackers were the good guys. And hackers were just coming up with innovative, cool, clever ways to get into systems and to do things uh, and to work around the computer. And I would, mostly I got up to some mischief. You know, I I screwed around with Ma Bell because it was Ma Bell. Why not? I found back doors into a few networks. Uh, my favorite memory of that time, I broke into the Clark County School District computers and I gave all my friends A's and then I gave all my favorite teachers a raise. So <laughs> nobody was all that mad at me. Uh, well, I, I, I'm sure some people were, but hey, statute of limitations has passed. It's been a long time, so whatever. But there I was, I'm working in this basement and it's loud and it sucks. And um, I actually wasn't making anything for a living. And in fact, I had to work two other jobs. I was working at a construction site where it's just digging holes with a post hole digger in Caliche in the Nevada desert. And let me tell you, if you ever want to work out, man, forget the gym, go work a construction site outdoors in the summer in Las Vegas, Nevada. And then, uh, on the weekends, I was working at a Marie Callender's restaurant where I was a busboy and a, and a dishwasher. And so one day, uh, I'm taking out the slop bucket out to the big grease bins. Yeah, it's every bit as glamorous as it sounds. And I slip and I fall and I break my arm really pretty badly. And so great. You know, here I am. I'm this kid. I'm, uh, I think I was 17 by then. Uh, yeah, is 17 years old, and I have a broken arm. And now, of course, I can't go back to the job as a computer or working on the computers because I can't type, and I can't go to the construction site. I can't go back to the Marie calendars. What the heck do I do now? Well, fortunately, I had workers comp from that job, and they paid us just enough to stay alive. But Nevada was offering this really cool deal where if you decided to go to college, if you took a college course, they would pay you an extra, I think it was like a hundred bucks a month, which back then in the seventies, you know, that was money. And so I tested out of high school early and I enrolled in the community college. And in the community college, I enrolled in two courses that really changed the trajectory of my life. Uh, one was in psychology, a uh, psychology course. And the other one was to become an EMT, an emergency medical technician. And by the time I finished that semester, finished those courses, my arm had healed. I was out of the cast. I was feeling pretty good. And I went to work for uh, an ambulance company uh, rather than going back to, you know, working in the basement as the computer. I kept hacking at night. Uh, and I, I, 
kind of make my way around with one hand, even when I was in the cast, but uh, I was saving that part of my life. But you know, now I had a real day-paying job. I was working for this ambulance company. Actually, I was working the uh, driving the wheelchair coach and driving people to their medical appointments by day. And when I was off shift, I would do ride-alongs with this guy who became my mentor, just this great guy, Jay Levinson. I'll never forget. He took me under his wing, and he was formerly from New York, and here I was this, you know, little homeless kid from the streets of New York, and so he takes me under his wing, and uh, I'm working with Jay uh, every chance I get, and I've quit all the other jobs by now. Now I'm just working there, and I'm making enough money to support myself, and so since I don't have the other jobs, I have some spare time, and, and I'm doing these ride-alongs, and so one day I come in for working my shift for, for driving the invalid coach, the wheelchair, they call it an invalid coach. How horrible is that? The wheelchair coach. And as I'm coming onto the lot, Jay comes running out of the cruise quarters and he tells me, get in the rig. Uh, And so I told him, you know, I can't, I work today. And he said, get in now. And real sense of urgency. And I thought, oh, this is cool, man. They, They promoted me and they just didn't tell me. They promoted me to the emergency rescue. How awesome. And so Jay tells me, you know, he even tells me, get up front. Wow. So I'm in the front of this ambulance and the lights and the sirens go off. And it's the first time I'm in the front seat uh, and Jay's driving and uh, go code three. And it's like the best day of my life for about mm, four and a half minutes. Four and a half minutes later, we end up in front of the MGM Grand Hotel, which is on fire. And that was the MGM Grand Hotel fire that occurred, I think it was uh, 1979, 1980, right around there. And it was the biggest fire in American history at the time. Uh, Big J was the first senior paramedic on scene, uh, and he was a real paramedic. I was just, you know, an EMT. And so he took charge of the scene, and we ended up treating over 300 people, just he and I, that day, never mind all the other people that got treated. And because he was the senior guy, he wouldn't task out the recon. So we ended up doing it. And we ended up taking uh, 84 of the people who perished in the fire out uh, and, and you know, taking care of them and, and bringing them to the coroner's office. And as a consequence of that, the city of Las Vegas decided to send me to paramedic school, which was amazing. And so that's what happened. I got, went to Los Angeles and I became a paramedic. I graduated one month after my 19th birthday. Uh, I was technically, I was too young to administer alcohol, which was one of the meds we had on the ambulance because you couldn't give anyone serve alcohol if you were under 21. And so they had to change the law in the state of Nevada to accommodate me. Uh, I could give morphine and, and Demerol, by the way, and Valium, but I couldn't give alcohol. So sure. So they changed the rules. And uh, I worked with Jay for years, uh, served as a paramedic with him. And eventually I had this very strange career. I went on at various times. I became, I I was a paramedic. I became a police officer for a couple of years. I worked as a deep sea rescue diver. And then during the first Gulf War, everything changed for me. Uh, by the first Gulf War, I had I was married. Uh, we uh, and I'll tell you all about Angie, my wife, who is the love of my life. Uh, but Angie and I were married a couple of years at the time. Uh, I was working as a cop. Then I was working with 
first at the Douglas County Sheriff's Office at Lake Tahoe, Nevada, and then I went to the Reno Police Department in Reno, Nevada. And by then, our second child had been born. And here I was trying to go to school and so I could make something of myself. And they kept changing my shifts and that kind of thing, because back then they hired you to be a cop because you were big, not because you were smart. Uh, hopefully, a lot of things have changed by now. I, I know not every department, but some places. But uh, I, I couldn't get to school, and so I decided, kind of a radical move, I joined the U.S. Army. And in the Army, I became team leader of uh, an elite scout snap recon team with the U.S. Army Special Forces. And so, big shout out there to all my brothers and sisters who served, whether in uniform in the military, firefighter, nurses, teachers, cops, uh, all the people who are fighting the good fight, uh, thank you. But uh, let's see. So where were we? There I am on active duty, and I loved my time in the military. I thought I was going to make it a lifetime career. They were sending me to office of candidate school. I was taking college courses. I was barreling forward, and I got broken. Uh, I got very badly injured several times, but the final time, uh, I couldn't walk anymore. I had broken all the bones in both of my feet, and they fused together. And, you know, between that and being, you know, all the, all the other blown up and bullet holes and all that kind of stuff, um, here I was now, I, I couldn't do the job anymore. And so the military shows me the door, and they discharged me. The worst part of that is I have nothing to go back to. Right, it's not like I'm going to go back to be a paramedic or a police officer or a deep sea diver. None of that stuff. Uh, and candidly, pretty damn depressed. I remember the day like it was yesterday. It was July 5th, 1993. Uh, it was just a couple of days before I was going to be discharged and labeled a disabled veteran. And I'm laying there on a gurney at Silas B. Hayes Hospital on Fort Ord in Monterey, California. It's this gorgeous setting, and I am feeling as crappy as you can about your life. The only saving grace is my wife, uh, Angie, who uh, you'll hear a lot about her in, in the coming episodes, I'm sure, because Angie is the, the force in my life. We've been married. I'm recording this in May of 2022 at the end of this month. We will have been very happily married for 35 years. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about my life. And I, I've some of my friends think I've had like a Forrest Gump life, and I have. I've, I've just been very fortunate. But the most fortunate thing that ever happened to me was marrying her. And every good thing that's ever happened to me has happened because I'm married to Angie. She's also, candidly, the most extraordinary person I've ever met. And I've met uh, every president since Ronald Reagan. I studied with Nobel laureates and field medal recipients. I've known royalty. Uh, they, they don't hold a candle to Angie. And what, anyway, um, I, I'm laying there on this gurney, and Angie can see I'm pretty depressed, and she's leafing through a New Yorker magazine that one of the docs must have left in the waiting room, and she comes across this cartoon that she shows me to, to cheer me up, I guess. And this is a cartoon that most of you have probably seen by now. And it's the cartoon where there are two dogs, one sitting at a desk, one's by his side, and the dog at the desk is sitting in front of a computer, and he looks at the other dog and he says, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. So I look at this cartoon and I said to Angie, well, why don't they know if you're a dog? In fact, why can't we know if if it's, that dog has spots, if its tail is wagging, if its nose is wet? 
And she said to me, you know what? You're smart. Why don't you figure it out? And no kidding, that's what I spent the rest of my life doing. Uh, that's what I'm still doing today, is trying to figure out what kind of dog that is, what's referred to now as a reverse Turing test. And uh, fortunately for me, you know, now I get out of the military, I'm discharged. I'd kept up my geek creds a little bit. I still knew a thing or two about computers. And I had in parallel become absolutely obsessed with trying to better understand human behavior. You might remember I was saying when I went to that community college, those were the two courses I took to be an EMT and the other one was in psychology. And that really stuck with me was what if we could understand human behavior, but but not anecdotally, quantifiably? What if we could really understand human behavior and even do more than just understand it? And that brought me to where I am now. By training, by vocation, by avocation, I'm a data scientist, a mathematician, and a psychologist. And how do those three perspectives come together? Well, uh, I'm glad you asked. Uh, uh, when I was teaching at universities, I would tell my students that the simple way to explain this, data science is really, for all the you know hype and all the nonsense out there about it, data science is really just about finding meaning uh, and extracting meaning from unimaginable amounts of information. That's it. Mathematics, doesn't matter whether you're talking about calculus or topology or not theory, whatever it is, mathematics is really just the study of patterns, period, the end, full stop. And psychologists, well, whether you're talking about clinicians who are working with clients on a couch or experimentalists who are running rats in a maze, we pretty much all do the same thing. We describe, understand, predict, and influence behaviors. And that's what I do. I work at the intersection of technology and psychology to sort through unimaginable amounts of information to find patterns that can be used to describe, understand, predict, and influence behaviors. That's it in a nutshell. That became the focus of my undergrad work, uh, which I did at the University of Nevada in Reno, uh, before I went on to a master's degree and a PhD uh, first in psychology, and then while working to a second PhD in mathematics at the City University of New York. Uh, I really focused in on this area, on quantifiably predicting human behavior. Uh, and that became the focus also of my postdoctoral work in a branch of mathematics, formerly known as nonlinear dynamical systems theory, but you may better know it as chaos and complexity theory. And I got to study that in some just remarkable locales. I was uh, at the New England Complex Systems Institute, which is co-sponsored by Harvard and MIT. I got to do coursework at NYU, Columbia, and then somehow I got a couple of National Science Foundation fellowships, and uh, that culminated in my joining a NATO-sponsored advanced study institute at Moscow State University. Yes, that Moscow, right in the heart of Russia. Uh, that was uh, uh, just after 9-11, and so it was you know kind of a weird time to be there. But um, then, you know, after grad school, after I'd finished the postdocs and with, of course, Angie at my side, and despite yeah, a few physical challenges, uh, I'm happy to say I went on to just a, a, a wonderful career. Over the last 20 years, I have, let's see, I've served as research director for Gallup. I was chief data scientist for Samsung, and I was a chief data officer and a member of the XCOM for Time, Inc., 
I also, uh, in the middle of that, I had the extraordinary privilege of serving for about a decade in the D.C. Beltway. That's where I worked with the Director of National Intelligence, Secretary James Clapper, and pretty much every one of the U.S. intelligence, defense, and security agencies. Uh, In fact, my remit there was to develop systems that are the intersection of technology and psychology to help ensure there'd be no more 9-11s. And so while I was in D.C., I, I had, wow, you you can hardly imagine. I'm, I'll share with you over the course of conversations what I can share that doesn't get me sent to federal prison to disclose. But, you know, built these really cool capabilities to help protect and keep people safe and keep the country safe. And I ended up uh, even working with President Obama. Uh, I end up running the social media research and strategy for the 2012 re-election campaign for President Obama and then Vice President, now President Biden. And, you know, after doing all that, um, well, frankly, I needed a nap. And so I semi-retired. Uh, I, I just went around the world doing speaking. I was doing keynote addresses at conferences. Uh, I decided to sit on a few boards. Uh, and frankly, I got bored uh, sitting on boards. I was uh, the final board I was on was a great group. It was Reimagine Holdings, a venture capital private equity fund. We had a couple of hundred million dollars of equity under management, and I got to help invest in these startups and these great companies. Uh, but it, I, here I was sitting on the sidelines, right, where I had been in the game my whole life, my whole career, and I was just sitting in the bleachers now, uh, admittedly helping them by pushing in money and you know, giving them some mentorship, giving them some guidance, but but I wasn't in the game. And right about then, I get a call from my past, a guy I haven't heard from in probably a little over eight years, a guy by the name of Brian Gallagher, who has since become my business partner and one of my best friends. In fact, one of the best friends I've ever had in my life. Brian and I, by the way, we first met, uh, well, at the time I was building a new capability for the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI, and Brian was serving with the Technical Security Division of the United States Secret Service. And we had one of those Jack Bauer moments that end up saving the life of the president. I, I kid you not. Great story. I'll tell. I, I promise I will have Brian on as a guest, and we'll tell you that story sometime soon. It's a story that's better told if uh, I'm having a glass of scotch, but we'll we'll do our best. But fast forward the eight years, and the way Brian tells the story, here he was. He was a serial entrepreneur at the time. He left the Secret Service a couple of years prior. He was going around the world, standing up capabilities to protect companies and countries all around the world. And the way he likes to tell it, he says he was looking for an AI super geek who he could work with to help him more effectively protect people, property, places, and profits. And so he goes to Google and he's Googling around and he's looking for, okay, who's the, uh, he says, you know, he's looking for who's the world's leading expert in applied artificial intelligence and cognitive computing. And my name keeps coming up. And he said, hey, I know that guy. So, so he gets in touch with me, gives me a call. And that sort of brings us to now. Uh, he called me and and the pitch for me was, how'd you like to get back in the game and save the world one more time? And man, it just, it got me. And it was, you know what? Yes, that's that's exactly what I want to do. I'm not ready to retire yet. Let's do it. And so we founded a company called Protected by AI, which by the way, you can find us. Uh, 
the company at protectedby.ai, interestingly enough. And that became our, our remit. That became what we do. We work with companies and countries to help keep them safer. And we uh, have the great clients that we serve. Uh, we work with the United States government. We work with the government of South Africa. We work with a couple of other governments in South Africa. And we'll talk about that. We'll have a guest on to talk about what we're doing to help them fight fraud, waste, abuse, and corruption and ensure the more equitable distribution of resources in South Africa. We work with some great folks out there. And we'll also talk about some of the work we're doing here in the U.S., but then uh, about a year and a half ago, we invented a new product called CodeLock. And you can find out about it, by the way, if you want to go to CodeLock.it, CodeLock.it. Uh, see, we, we believe there's some simple names and simple URLs. But that product turned out to really revolutionize cybersecurity and more particularly what's known as DevSecOps, Development Security Operations. Again, we'll talk more about that some other time I'll have on uh, another expert we can talk to to talk about that. And we'll also, I'll throw up some some links on the uh, website so you can find this stuff so you don't have to scroll it down, especially if you're driving. If you're driving, don't try to write this down, please, public service announcement. And that sort of brought us to where we are today um, with this show and to tell you about the show and what we're doing and what we hope to be doing into the future. So what's the show about? Well, about a year and a half ago, I was sitting on a committee with ATARC. ATARC is the Advanced Technology Academic Research Center, which uh, is this great organization. It was established back in, I think it was 1966 by President Johnson, by LBJ, with the goal of advancing conversations around technology and public policy. So really foresighted, uh, really ahead of their times. It's become obviously much more salient now. And I had been named a couple of years ago, I don't know that I deserved it, but IBM in 2016 named me one of their, well, named me their think leader for the year 2016. And I got all these other, you know, the, my pundits, the press, the professional organizations labeled me as the leading thinker on applied artificial intelligence and cognitive computing. And so ATARC approached me and they asked if I'd like to sit on a committee regarding policy issues as pertains to AI. And I've sat on some committees in the Beltway before, but frankly, I'm not a committee guy. Uh, you can probably already tell, right? I'm a, <laughs> I, I don't necessarily try to fit inside the, the mold uh, as much as most people would like, and so, or at least the powers that be would like. And so I, I joined the committee, but with a, a condition. I told them what I'd like, really like to do also is host a bi-weekly meeting just for AI super geeks and other technologists. And so I called that conversation, that bi-weekly meeting, wait for it, Skynet, Star Trek, Socrates, and Scotch. And <laughs> that's exactly what we talked about was the everything from the dystopian to the utopian perspectives and what the future will bring in technology. And we had these great conversations literally over Scotch. We would have a, this was during COVID. So we had a virtual scotch together and we'd have these conversations, or, you know, you could drink uh, Chardonnay or <laughs> tea or coffee or whatever you wanted. And we had so much fun doing it, which is where we are today. That's what brought us to this show. Tomorrow today is an extension of those same sorts of conversations. You know, it, it strikes me that in this age, 
uh, in this time we're living in now, we are all getting increasingly caught up in our own little filter bubbles. And whether you watch MSNBC, CNN, Fox, you're only getting a limited perspective and you're getting, I think, a very shallow perspective, right? We don't have the same sort of deep conversations we used to have long time ago. Uh, that idea of the salon of sitting around in the coffee shop for hours or or at, even at the bar, wherever you are, and sitting with your best friend, your your best friend who's smarter than you and having these great conversations, that's what I miss most, not just during COVID, but in the times we're living in. There's also this distrust, this pervading distrust of expertise. And so I thought, why don't we have some conversations with some people who really know what they're talking about, who, look, I'm going to feel, this isn't going to be a gotcha kind of a show, but I feel free to disagree with them. Uh, And let's bandy back and forth, but respectfully, right? Uh, Can we return civil to civil discourse? Can we disagree without being disagreeable? And I, I know we can, because that's what I've done for years, and I certainly did in Skynet, Star Trek, Socrates, and Scotch, and that's what we're going to do now. I think the focus of those, well, the focus of those conversations, what it's going to be about, what's it going to be about? Well, like most of you, I've come to realize that a convergence of technological, societal, political, and economic forces is combining to cause this to be the most dynamic time of disruptive change in history. And that change is happening faster than ever before. So in order to speak to those issues, I'm going to be hosting what I hope will be a series of edutaining, mind-bending, candid conversations with leading-edge thinkers as we discuss what's likely to come your way so you can better prepare for tomorrow today. And as I say, this won't be a cage match. I'm not interested in sensationalism, gotcha journalism. I just genuinely want to learn. I love to learn, like so many of you. And in fact, if you're still tuned in to this show, that's why. Because you're like me. You're a lifelong learner. You're probably a bit autodidactic. You like to just find information and learn for yourself. And um, uh, th- that's that's my great joy in life. I think uh, that really we've, we, we've sort of let that go. And so rather than us just huddling in our homes with books— I'd like you to join me and join in a conversation. You know, there's a, one of my favorite quotes comes from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And he said, a single conversation across the table with a wise person is better than 10 years mere study of books. And I think that's so true. I read voraciously. I probably kick out, well, when I was a little bit younger, I would kick out 250, 300 books a year. I'm still close to that now. But they're just books. You can't engage with them. In fact, a uh, little fun trivia fact, uh, Socrates never wrote a book and he never wrote anything because he thought that books were dead, that you couldn't interact with them. And so we're going to go past that. We're going to talk to authors. We'll talk to people who have written some very interesting books and we'll talk to them about what they've written. But what I want to do is transcend that. I want us to dig a little deeper. I want us also, when you see people on in, on the news or on some of these shows, they don't have a chance to go in depth and really have a substantive conversation. We're going to do that. We're going to limit these episodes to about an hour, uh, but we're going to get deep in that hour. We're going to talk to people and really dig in a little bit. And 
part of that, um, candidly, don't tell the guests, but between you and I, I'm going to draw on some of my background as a shrink. And uh, uh, well, and let me tell you a little bit about my perspective as a shrink, um, as a psychologist. Uh, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, but I think there's this regrettable tendency in most clinical counseling settings, in psychotherapy in particular, to pathologize the person, to encourage rumination, right? To talk about why they're broken and how they got broken and tell me about your mother and, you know, how you got here. And, and I think that's fine and that's that's okay. I'm much more interested in this perspective, uh, which has really informed my perspective as a psychologist, known as solution-focused brief therapy. And it's just that. We're looking for solutions. We're not just worrying about, oh, this is what happened, which, I, again, that's fine. It, I think it's important. I, I'm a huge student of history. I think it, we have to know how we got here in a lot of places. But when you hear people being interviewed, almost always they're talking about something that happened or something that's going on now uh, at best, which technically is, you know, in the past. I want to focus on the future. I want to focus more about what we can do, right? I think most of us have the same experience of we're sitting at home, we're looking at the TV while we're screaming at the TV, right? We feel this sense of impotent rage about all these issues, all these things that are coming up, and what the heck do we do about it? What should society do about it? Everything from misinformation and disinformation to electric cars to climate to uh, the future workforce to uh, algorithmic biases. To, there's just this host of topics. And by the way, we've got a, already a list of about 50 topics we'd like to talk about. And we're going to get an expert on for me to speak to, for me to get a little bit smarter about these things, hopefully a lot smarter about these things. And all of you can too. And so that brings me to another point. I want you to join these conversations genuinely. I'm going to call on you uh, and ask you for your help by doing a couple of things. Number one, by sending in suggestions. Are there not only topics you'd like to learn about, but if we're going to ask someone something about this topic, what do you want to know, right? If we're talking about electric vehicles, as an example, and we're going to bring someone on uh, what questions would you love to ask an expert about that, whether that's about the mechanics of it, the industry, the political implications, whatever it is, it's all fair game. You're, it's your conversation. Uh, likewise with disinformation, you know, what what danger are we in? What do, And most importantly, what do we do about it, right? And then I'm going to ask you as for a return favor, in addition to sending, and I'm asking you already for a bunch of favors, sending topics, sending questions, what you would love to have asked. But then I'm going to ask of you is for you to do something about it. When our guests give us some thoughts on what we can do, I'm going to ask you to do something about that. That could even be just giving a few minutes of thought to the topic, deep thought, to really thinking about it, maybe having a conversation with one of your friends, uh, with uh, hopefully uh, a significant other in your life who you're close friends with. And that's my favorite thing to do is, is talk with Angie or talk with one of my best friends about these things. I'm going to encourage you to do that and to start doing something and to help us do something so that we can collectively start to make for a better tomorrow today. 
Thank you so much for joining us for episode one. I'm really looking forward to continuing the conversation with you. I hope you'll all subscribe, stay tuned in, and download our upcoming episodes. Until then, be well, my friends. Cheers. Cheers.